Alrighty, everyone, welcome back. After a long six-month hiatus, it is myself, Tavis Killian, and Anthony McDaniels back again with another episode of the Wacky World of Energy. How have you been in these past six months, Anthony? Well, Tavis, we've been doing we've been doing a lot. We've been pretty busy. I've been pretty wrapped up, but I'm certainly glad to be back here doing this again. Um, I don't know mm-hmm. if once a week's going to happen, but maybe we do like a once a month thing because uh, you know we can really focus on the meatiest of news and uh, really dive into that stuff. So we're going to try and do that by kicking off another one here today and see how that goes. So uh, with that, uh, what's first on the agenda we have to talk about here today, Taz? Well, since it's been a while, figure we ease into it with a story that we're both familiar with at this point. Actually, Anthony brought this to my attention, but I've got this article here from Reuters. You can find it almost anywhere at this point. This was published back on the 12th of January. We're recording on the 18th. And it's an article about how the U.S. House is passing a bill to ban exports of reserve oil to China. Now, if you just look at the headline, that makes sense. But what you may not know is that uh, when we were selling oil from the SPR, turns out a lot of it was bought up by a company that was wholly owned by Sinopec, which, if you didn't know, is the state-funded oil uh, agency of China. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, basically... um, I'm going to start off with the devil's advocate perspective. There's been some things that I've read about this and they say, well, I mean, you're not going to be able to, what are you going to do? I mean, oil is a global market. Every, every drop goes into this massive ocean of daily oil. How you, you know, it, what's the point, right? Like the oil is going to go where it's going to go. If China wants to end up with oil that came from the United States, it's going to fair enough. But I think what's more important here is actually seeing something that appears to be largely uh, bipartisan. Right, because it's not that the bill passed; it's that the bill passed three hundred thirty-three to ninety, or three hundred thirty-one to ninety-seven in the House of Representatives. What that means to me is more important as a bipartisan thing. Is you got you have politicians on both sides of the aisle, on both you know for both major political parties are saying, you know, it's it's just another way for them to announce that they are more of them starting to see China as a potential strategic threat, right? And so why would we knowingly and be okay with, you know, directly selling oil to them when we're trying to shore up things for our own domestic security, right? Mm-hmm. So to me, that's probably the biggest point to make is that, you know, we're seeing signs through, I mean, a 331 to 97 is is pretty bipartisan in today's Congress, for sure. So... That to me is the most important thing is that everybody's starting to see, you know, China is a certain place compared to us and it could be a strategic issue going on. So it's like, you know, let's, let's, I think it's showing that more people are waking up, right? And, you know, ideologues aside and dogmas aside, that the fact is that, you know, if we're going to sell strategic reserves to shore up our own situation domestically, even if it is only a time buying gimmick, why would we directly do this to our largest economic and potentially military adversary, strategic adversary on the planet? Right? Like this is you know, I mean, so to me, that's the best part of this news. It, it will likely pass uh, what it actually will mean ultimately for the oil markets. Eh, but again, I think it just shows that there's a true bipartisan, support in if we're going to talk about energy and we're going to talk about taking care of what we need to take care of here this is a first big to me bipartisan like okay 
all right, let's let's really think about what we're doing. Let's think about does it make sense, right? So, I think I think that's the best part to talk about in this whole article. And anybody can find it. This article is well reported on. Again, it was Reuters, January twelfth, twenty twenty three. I know we're recording on January eighteenth, twenty twenty three. So fairly recent, um, pretty easy to find. Um, and uh, another tip end part of this and to uh, the, the last part of this article which I think further substantiates what I'm trying to get at here is that they say and I'm taking this from the article here US House lawmakers also voted overwhelming this overwhelmingly this week to create a select committee on China <laughs> to counter Beijing's growing international influence House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said it would address issues such as bringing jobs back to from China to the United States, securing intellectual property and bringing supply chains back to the country. So, you know, again, this is, that's the good part is that, uh, you know, uh, they also say the Biden administration has set no plans to conduct further sales from the SPR, though some of the smaller states required by legislation passed by Congress in prior years could occur, um, you know, so some of the smaller sales could be required. There's also some legislation that's been talked about and maybe suspending congressionally mandated SPR sales this year. Uh, I don't think anything's officially come to anybody's desk or, or through a floor vote or anything on that yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if that were to happen. And then on the other side, there's some speculation that Biden administration could potentially do more releases. Uh, so we'll see what happens, you know, more releases, no more releases. Uh, we'll see what happens, but at least it looks like there's more of a bipartisan effect going on in regards to what we're doing strategically and, and China in particular. So, um, yeah. So I guess with that, I mean, any, any, what are your thoughts on some of that conversation? That I think you hashed it out perfect. I mean, your devil's advocate argument at the beginning, I like it. It's something to consider. Sure, you sell oil, it's going to find its way in the markets, but the whole idea of this SPR release was despite the fact that it wasn't exactly an emergency, the goal was to lower energy prices and giving feedstock to international markets doesn't necessarily have the greatest effect here. So I think we're asking good questions. Like you said, it's nice to see everyone unified in addressing these goals. And uh, I will add, I forget which representative it was, but one who voted no said that this bill wasn't good enough because we should outright ban sales to China entirely. But I think that's an argument for much, much further down the road. We're just getting our toes wet at this point. Yeah. But, but past So that, what do we have next up on the docket? Well, you sent this article, so I didn't know if you wanted to take it away. I mean, I think the quote at the start does great. But this is from the Epic Times. Uh, one of our go-to sources for news. We strongly recommend anyone at least check it out. Uh, and the article was released on January 14th, titled Dogma Trump's Democracy for America's Climate Change Advocates. Mm. Pretty hefty, pretty dense, but I think the intro does great. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell dismissed the notion that the Federal Reserve should take a hand in making climate policy. Quote, without explicit congressional legislation, it would be inappropriate for us to use our monetary policy or supervisory tools to promote a greener economy or to achieve other climate-based goals. End quote. And this is refreshing to me because it seems like any time you go, oh, we have this climate initiative, everyone immediately, there's nine people ready to take it up. But I like that there's some discretion here to say, hey, this may not be the best 
use of our time and resources. Yeah, I mean, so the article goes on further to say that, you know, the United States Powell is in the minority among central bankers. We've got the ECB, um, European Central Bank, in what it describes, this is from the article, as an evolving climate agenda. The Bank of England has a climate agenda, as does the Bank of Japan and even the Bank of China. Um, you know, we do have some of this kind of scuttling in here. You know, the SEC Commission and Gary Gensler, the chair for the SEC, is all in on the climate change stuff here. Now, rather than getting into, you know, what you believe is right... What everybody should appreciate here is that if your central bank adopts a climate framework agenda, then they will basically cut off even more capital to fossil fuel developments, right? So in doing so, any bank that's part of the Federal Reserve System, which is, uh, well, basically all of them in the United States, you, you, they wouldn't be even allowed to write loans for energy production, conventional energy production, oil and gas. Uh, that would create whatever pending energy crisis we may have that would make it probably a lot worse because at the end of the day, whatever anybody really wants to believe is the future of energy, we can learn a lot from the past. You know, in the 1700s, as late as the 1700s, wood was the primary energy source for the entire planet. And it was, it was the riches, right? If you look at the Europeans coming over to North America in particular in the early colonial periods, what they really had was a vast wealth of lumber to build Navy boats and power things and all this. Well, we still use wood today, don't we, right? <laughs> we just don't, it's not responsible for the majority of the energy pie. Mm -hmm. And wood has a handful of uses, especially when it comes to energy. Oil, a barrel of oil, has currently over 6,000 identified uses. So the reality is oil will probably be used for as long as we're around in some fashion or another. The question will be more about where are you getting it from. We still use wood today. We still use a lot of wood today. Heck, right now, there's pockets in Europe that are getting wood pellets from the United States so they can burn, you know, less natural gas because, you know, they're still trying to get off of that Russian gas, right? And it's going to take us some time to fully supply them with LNG tankers over the Atlantic. So wood is still used. Oil is going to be used for a long time. And even if you took oil out of every single, every single internal combustion engine, every car that uses gasoline, guess what? you're still going to need over 50 million barrels a day for all the other stuff that you make out of it, right? So the point is, whether you like it or not, you're going to use hydrocarbons for a long, long, long time. And if your central banks decide to stop allowing it to be okay to finance these things, the reality is you're just going to turn the entire country into California, which uses basically the same amount of oil as they did 40 years ago, but they import two-thirds of it now. They import it over the Pacific from the Middle Eastern countries. They import it from the rainforest. I mean, they're not helping the climate. They're not helping anything. They're just convincing themselves that they're being 
it's not in my backyard. That's all it is. But the point is you're still using it, right? So I, you know, there's a lot of push out there to, you know, make these things happen. But you know what? They can do that all they want. It's not going to change usage. All it's going to do is it's going to drive scarcity. And that means things are going to go up in price. It means it's going to be harder to get things. It's going to be harder to have certain things you're used to. Um, it's not an end of a world scenario, I don't think. But I'll tell you one thing. I don't think a lot of people in their real daily lives would appreciate that very much. Mm -hmm. You know, for what? To have less CO2 emissions? Yeah, if that's the okay. benchmark. <laughs> but, but wait, let me, let me... The United States CO2 emissions have actually plateaued for over 10 years. Why? Because we had a free market energy dynamic. Because we created the shale revolution. Not because of government programs, but because of good old-fashioned ingenuity and entrepreneurialism and risk-taking, right? And all that work unlocked a whole pile of natural gas, which meant we could go off from coal generation more and into gas generation for power more. We have made more progress at removing emissions than every other developed country. And we did so without a central bank policy trying to mandate a climate agenda. The irony is that everything that these dinguses want, <laughs> we've actually done. Mm -hmm. in, in spite of no, no central bank climate agenda. Mm -hmm. So if your real goal is to cut <laughs> CO2 emissions... Why don't you let the free market help you out a little bit right there? If you want to regulate, make sure it's done cleanly, and that's fine. But to say, basically, blackball an entire section of the energy market and say, no, no, you're not allowed, you're not worthy, flies in the face of what we've actually seen for a couple of decades now, especially over the last decade. So, to what end, right? I mean... Why are you going to make such a big deal about having a climate agenda when the only country that's developed that's made actual progress is the one that doesn't have a climate agenda in the central bank? Mm -hmm. Hello, McFly. <laughs> Hello. I mean, it's... I mean, if you really care, why don't you look at what's actually happened, the trends of human history, the trends of energy usage, the current state of all of these things, and then you look and say, oh, man, what developed countries actually made most of the progress? You would think logically that... You would say, man, look at that one country that made all that progress. We should learn from that. But these people are talking about none of that matters. Our ideals matter. Our dogma matters. We just want to say that we're saving things. But you're not. You're not saving a darn thing. You, you're just virtue signaling, really. But you're not even accomplishing what your main stated goal is by doing so. Yeah. So I think people should really take that into account when they think about, well, you know, maybe it would be good. And then, well, okay, you can talk about maybes all you want. Let's look at what's actually happened. Let's look at what things actually are instead of getting all wrapped up into this moral dogma crap. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for what it's worth, those are my two cents on that. Hey, I, I think you're right. And the point of looking back to other case studies, examining history... I would argue that government intervention to achieve certain policies has historically not worked so well. It seems the more you try and push one thing, 
the harder it is to get it. And I think that is probably most apparent right now from this article we've got coming up next from Oil Price. Published today, actually, January 18th, the day of recording, Russia remains the top seaborne oil supplier to Europe despite sanctions. I mean, right there, despite (laughs) sanctions. They wanted so bad to get away from this. And even outside of Europe, we look at India, we look at the mm-hmm. Persian Gulf. I mean, there's so, so much energy coming out of Russia. And I guarantee you it's finding its way into Europe, whether they yeah. welcome it or it comes in from someone else who's in the middle. Yeah. Yeah, they really got to it hard, huh? Here's, here's according to data from the, this is from the article here, according to data from the maritime sector brokerage firm, Benchero Costa, Last year, the EU imported 98.8 million tons of Russian crude via sea, down from 112.5 million tons in 2021 and 128.5 million tons in 2019. So they they cut it a little bit, right? <laughs> like, teeny tiny. Like a little more than 10%. Yeah, I mean, still significant, but it's certainly not what they were aiming for. Yeah. Reality, you know, lies need propaganda and media campaigns. The truth is just the truth. And the truth is they still need a lot of energy and the United States can't just flip a switch and get them a whole pile of LNG on a reliable schedule over the Atlantic overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, Though I wish we could. We'd see a lot of benefit in our own markets, but that's you don't build the infrastructure and this is what happens. You rely on one entity to supply energy for 75% of a certain region. Yeah. This is what happens. You got to diversify. You got to work to make your own resources. And if you don't, you've got to buy from at least more than one person. So, I, I mean, if anything, this was a lesson in diversification and how at this point they can't, <laughs> you can't whip up these new, well, you can whip up new yeah. trade agreements, but like Anthony said, the capacity, that's just not there. Yeah. So further down in the article here, it says, though Russia has seen its exports to the EU decline by over 12% last year, the data shows that overall it saw an increase in exports by 10.3%. So basically the stuff that didn't go to the EU went to India. Just so you go right back to the EU (laughs) if they had too much. (laughs) It's like, like, I'm going to restate that. Though Russia has seen its exports to the EU decline by 12%, the data shows that overall it's on increase in exports by 10.3%. And the figure is only slightly below 2019 levels. So so essentially Russia is pandemic. exporting last year. Yeah, it's just such a, <laughs> you know, <laughs> be careful because Putin has said that effective... February 1st, we're talking, what is that? Not even two weeks now. Something yeah, like that. Yeah, less than. That, no, exactly two weeks. Look at that. Yeah, we got a couple weeks. And they said, you know what? I don't care the price. If the EU nations, NATO nations, the US, anybody participating in this proposed price cap mechanism, we're just not going to send our oil to you. We'll see what happens. But... I will say this, for all of the, the media campaigns, let's say it that way, 
about how Russia's revenues are getting kicked and how they're just, they, you know, this, this war is crippling their energy trading revenue system. Why did their exports see an overall increase in 2022 over 2021? <laughs> no, I mean, at the end of the day, the world still has an immense demand for crude. It's going to be serviced somehow. Just because we said yeah. we don't want Russia's oil doesn't mean we don't need the oil that they were supplying in the first place. Yeah, it'll it'll find its place, won't mm -hmm. it? So we'll. Um, I guess we can move on to the next. This is also from Oil yeah. Press, and it is titled "The IEA Sees Global Oil Demand Hitting a Record High in 2023." This was published January 18th. We've got this bullets at the top here. <laughs> give you the quick data. The IEA believes global oil demand will hit a record high of 101.7 million barrels per day this year. The IEA raised its demand estimate by 200,000 barrels per day, with the agency saying China will drive nearly half of global demand growth. Oil prices continued to rally early on Wednesday morning on IEA estimates that oil markets are set to tighten in 2023. I gotta say, I think I agree with every one of those points. Demand up, China servicing a lot of it, and supply going down uh, from a global perspective at least. Yep. So China's reopening. You know, it seems like every week we must have a umpteen articles about <laughs> China's doing this, China's doing that in regards to oil. And and look, let me let me just get this out. I understand probably as good as anybody that is an average casual industry participant that you know follows the industry as industry. I get it. China's a big deal for oil. Right. But every time the oil price moves up and down two, three, four dollars doesn't mean it's because something happened in China. It just means they have no other headline to give it. Right. I'm sorry, but it's true. So, yep. yes, China's demand is going to probably be the biggest single contributor to oil price direction on a fundamental basis. This is true. But for all of the narratives out there, why don't you just look at what they've actually announced? They announced, China being they, that their import totals quotas for 2023 are going to be what? Was it 30% higher? Uh, I think year? it was, yeah, about 30. Okay, Just so imports. you got the Chinese Communist Party over there, and they're saying to their state-run refiners and import terminals, you need to bring in more this year, a lot more this year than you did last year. I think that's pretty much clearly stating right there what we should expect China to do. Right. And to be totally honest, that's about all you got to say about China until some other new development occurs. Right. Mm -hmm. if, until they come out and announce, and they might, that they're going to import less, then we ought to just say, well, they're going to import more by a noticeable amount than they did the previous year. And that's probably going to drive a lot. And I think the IEA finally caught on like, yeah, this is going to be a real thing. It's appearing to be a real thing. Again, that could change. And if something big happens in China, it will certainly have the biggest, probably significant impact on the demand side of the equation for oil markets globally, right? But again, we could talk about all these things, all these articles talking about, oh, well, China, they have all this COVID surge and things are slowing down and they're going to have all these problems and they're blah, blah, blah. Well, again, the state said 
boom. Want you to import more, guys. We need to use more, a lot more, right? So that is probably the biggest takeaway if you want to have all this China news. It's that they say they're going to import more, that they're going to have to. So, uh, you know, the article goes on to say here that after they say half of demand growth will come from China, at the same time, world supply growth is set to slow to 1 million barrels a day following last year's OPEC-led growth of 4.7 million barrels per day. Yeah, that wasn't an actual growth of 4.7 million barrels a day, everybody. What it was, it was, uh, it was probably largely oil cuts being brought back into the market. It's not that there was a bunch yeah. of exploration particularly. So, yeah, I mean... No wonder why the supply growth is set to slow from 4.7 million barrels a day to 1 million barrels a day. Overall, the article continues here, non-OPEC plus, overall non-OPEC plus rise of 1.9 million barrels a day will be tempered by an OPEC plus drop of 870,000 barrels a day due to expected declines in Russia. I, okay, so... I would say that they're probably overbanking on declines in Russia. That could happen. And they're probably also, though, overbanking on rise in non-OPEC plus supply. Basically, U.S. When they say an overall non-OPEC plus rise of 1.9 million barrels a day in supply is going... They're expecting U.S. production to grow. There's no other non-OPEC plus country that's able to provide global scale growth. There's a lot of people banking on the U.S. oil market growing. What is it? What are people thinking? A million barrels a day? What, what are people saying? We're supposed to grow this year? Yeah, it's been all over the In board. In this country, is that what they're essentially saying? Essentially, growth is the common consensus. Yeah. I mean, it, so, it's in line with what the EIA, I'm sorry, the IEA says. And based on the content we've been putting out over the past two years, uh, it can all really be boiled down to supply, dwindling, demand, back to where it was, if not better. So yeah, I agree with the IEA here, but this is, like you said, lots of the news right now is a washer cycle of, oh, China, COVID good, China, COVID bad. Yeah, And it's a bit uninspiring, but that's okay because we have massive news to talk about and i think this goes back to at least top five concepts rare petro preaches on right the yeah Petro dollar and uh shame on me for not knowing this when anthony brought it to my attention but this article is from also oil price yesterday saudi arabia is open to discuss non-dollar oil trade settlements now anthony if i didn't um, know anything about that why should i be worried about global markets we enjoy in this country what's referred to as exorbitant privilege because we have the world reserve currency. And when we pulled the peg off of gold in 1971, Henry Kissinger at the time brokered a deal with the kingdom of Saud to say, if you price oil as the leader of OPEC and everybody else will follow suit in US dollars, right? We will provide protection for you and we won't make you subject to U.S. dollar antitrust system regulations, 
right? Well, those things that were put into place now a little more around 50 years ago uh, are starting to disintegrate to some degree. So Xi Jinping was over in the Gulf, the Arab Gulf, on a, on a visit not that long ago and said, hey guys, feel free to use the Shanghai Exchange. Feel free to, you know, go over and deal, sell us your oil, use the Shanghai. Well, the Shanghai Exchange has yuan, their currency-backed oil contract, which, uh, or currency-denominated, which apparently is backed in gold. Now, the reason why we can afford the things we do is because we can export as much debt as we want. If the Treasury wants money. All they have to do is sell a bond. And what creates a huge demand in U.S. debt is the fact that if everybody, listen, hydrocarbons power the world. So if you're a developed or developing country, okay, you need to be able to buy and sell oil in U.S. dollars. The way that you have the liquidity to do that is that you have to have a lot of U.S. treasuries, i.e. U.S. debt. So if countries that need the oil, such as India and China, feel that they can get the oil from the exporters like Saudi Arabia and Russia by not having to go through the U.S. dollar, okay, then what that means is it will have a drop in demand for U.S. treasuries which means that the only way to fill the gap would be for the Federal Reserve to come in and buy our own debt more and more and more and more, which means that other countries would say, well, if the U.S. is the one doing a lot of their own debt purchases, then how much is that dollar really going to buy? And guess what? It means everything we import from energy and otherwise is going to go up denominated in dollars, potentially by a lot. So... This is huge impacts and everybody has written this off. You know, I've seen even things on social media about this, like, oh yeah, you know, I'll ask how that went for, you know, who was it, Syria a couple of years ago or whatever, Libya, it was Libya. Uh, guys, I wouldn't, <laughs> would not place them in the same category as China. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> a, little, a little different. China is the Skills. number one oil importer in the world. Saudi Arabia, I believe, is the number one oil exporter in the world, followed by Russia. And if all three of them, and let's throw India in the equation, they obviously don't care about buying Russian crude, even though they're a pariah of the NATO countries. Uh, well, guess what? If all those guys say, yeah, fine, we'll, we'll trade oil, we'll sell you our oil, and we'll buy our oil from you, and it will all not be in the U.S. dollar system, or it doesn't have to be. That means the U.S. dollar sanction weapon gets detoothed almost immediately. Mm -hmm. Without that, the next resort we have to combat is a little bit more conventional and a little bit more hot. It's a lot harder to get countries to do what you want if you can't threaten them by cutting them out of the economic table. Right? Mm-hmm. So this is huge. I mean, this was an official announcement to the world that Saudi Arabia is willing to do non-dollar, non-US dollar, 
non-euro oil trade settlements. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I mean the the quotes. That... This should be number one freaking priority for international security for the U.S. perspective, not only militarily but also economically. And I really hope the powers that be in Washington are taking this exceedingly seriously because there will be nobody to blame except foreign actor countries if oil prices spiral out of control in U.S. dollars, along with other things, in the next year or two. It's going to largely be attributed to the large chunks of the world selling and buying oil, saying we don't have to go through the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. This is a huge thing, and it should not be taken lightly. I'm not trying to be hyperbolic in speech here, okay? But for anybody who thinks that this isn't a big deal, potentially, you need to do a little bit of uh, education on yourself here because that is a huge deal. Yeah, even the quotes you know, are super revealing, I feel. I mean, it's a, that's a thumb to the nose towards the United States. The Saudi Minister of Finance, Mohammed Al-Jadan, quote, there are no issues with discussing how we settle our trade agreements, whether it's the U.S. dollar, euro, Saudi real. I don't think we're waving away or ruling out any discussion that will help improve trade around the world. And that, to me, basically says, U.S., you're not all that, and also, we'll do what we want. They're trying to, like you said, detooth those sanctions. Well, the sanction tool. Yeah. Yeah, so everybody is getting... They've gotten way too comfortable, and I've known people that, you know, they were veterans in the industry when I was still in diapers in the 80s. And, you know, they've even, eh, you know, the U.S. dollar, that's the king. I'm not saying it's going to disappear into ambiguity to the relic of history. No. What I am saying is our ability to export debt, to have exorbitant privilege... I think it was maybe Alan Greenspan that had coined that phrase. I'm not sure on that. Um, a lot of that is at risk. And it doesn't mean the end of the U.S. What it means, though, is here's another takeaway. Now, they might try to politically demonize our industry again. But the reality is the reality that if these nations continue to team up to say, you don't have to worry about the U.S. dollar system. Eh. Well, we still use a lot of oil here, and, and we will have a hard choice to make, and, and we, will, we might find ourselves in a situation where, begrudgingly to about half of the political spectrum, we might have to just deal with getting more domestic energy production quick. Mm-hmm. And uh, we could see a very big change in Oh, I wouldn't say that people are going to abandon their political ideologies. But we might see a suspension of some things that are trying to run fossil fuels out of business in this country. We might see a pause, if you will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I don't know if there will be much other choice. If this gains I mean, much traction, and I fully expect that it will, um, you could see a lot of things happen. Commodities priced in U.S. dollars across the board will significantly rise. We're talking gold, silver, copper, food products, energy products. It's going to be across the board. You could simultaneously see 
a potential large amount of volatility in the stock markets drops and then major federal reserve interventions and then then yeah that could prop it up but then it could destroy purchasing power at an even faster pace of the us dollar creating even higher inflation it's going to be something to watch to me this is the thing to watch not just because we're in oil but because everything we enjoy in this country is because we're wealthy we can we want to spend you know hundreds of billions of dollars on our military where do you think we get all that money from? We sell treasuries, everybody. <laughs> what do you want to say? How does the treasury of the United States raise capital? They sell U.S. debt. That's how they do it. Mm -hmm. Hello? So if one of the large demand drivers on a consistent basis of foreign U.S., you know, of foreign players buying U.S. debt, is so that they have liquidity to trade in energy markets. What happens when they realize that they don't have to go through the U.S. dollar to get the oil? Greenback gets a whole lot weaker, if I had to guess. Could or it could not. The point is that it's going to change a lot of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. I would say the greenback would get weaker in absolute terms depending on how you follow it, like if people follow the DXY, but the DXY is what? It's the US dollar against the Euro, the pound and the yen. Oh, so that's an irrelevant yeah. metric, you know, it's a relevant metric you're talking about. We're not talking about those, those cohorts of nations. We're talking about Russia, China, India, Iran, South, you know, these are the cohorts of nations that, that they're not in the dollar index so um yeah the purchasing power of international goods especially from countries that aren't historically allies or current friends of the united states anything we get from them would get very expensive probably pretty quickly i just hope that uh again to to summarize all this we still need to use a lot of oil that's not changing. We still need to use a lot of gas. That's not changing. Um, the free market is going to be more effective than government mandates. And at the end of the day, if we really think that we can just sit here and import everything, a lot of the stuff isn't even essential stuff. It's just goods and trinkets, not food stuff. So, I mean, we will probably be faced with a scenario where a lot of people are going to have to prioritize necessary expenses over discretionary expenses. We'll see what happens here with the energy system. I, when I say that, I say that in economic sense here, but, uh, you know, you know, just to finish it off at the end of the article here, the last paragraph. During a visit to Saudi Arabia last month, Xi Jinping pledged to ramp up efforts to promote the use of the yuan in energy deals, suggesting at a summit in the Saudi capital that the Gulf Cooperation Council GCC, countries should make the full use of the Shanghai Petroleum and Natural Gas Exchange to carry out its trade settlements in yuan. <laughs> so... There's a good chunk of the world, well more than half of the world's population, 
that either don't like or don't care for the U.S. dollar system. It doesn't matter to them whether they use it or not, or they don't want to use it at all. So this is a huge deal. And that Saudi finance minister says this in Davos, Switzerland, at the World Economic Forum with all these international leaders and heads of state and company, CEOs and so on. I mean, it was that was the announcement. That was, in my opinion, the biggest international, unexpected, just, you could have anticipated this, but he just sat there and said it to the whole freaking world. And I think the world needs a little time to digest this, but you better get quick on digesting it because it's happening. The announcement just happened. The biggest announcement, in my opinion, in the oil markets in the last 50 years happened this week as far as the relation of oil in regards to the U.S. dollar. There you go, everybody. Please go look for the article. Educate yourself on the history of these things, the implications of these things, because it's a very real thing. And for all of those listening who work in the domestic U.S. oil and gas sector, I'm going to tell you, our jobs will be getting a lot more important in the near future as these things continue to develop. Mm -hmm. And I think this was an excellent episode to get back into. I know we've been away for a few months, but good news here. You don't have to worry about the New World Order yet. But like Anthony said, it'd be foolish to not even consider it. So keep educating yourself. One of the easiest ways to do that is to subscribe to this very podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, we've got great video essays going back, interviews with professionals. If you go to rarepetro.com, not only do we have our own content, but a lot of this other content we're mentioning is available to find there. It's important to us to understand the geopolitics and fundamentals, and it's important for you to also understand that as well. So let us do all the hard lifting and just join us for the discussion. It's a lot of fun, and you'll always learn something. But I think that's about all we have for this podcast. Anything else, Anthony, before we close out? Nope. Nice to be back, and I guess we'll see everybody again next month sometime, yeah? Something like that. This has been Tavis Killian and Anthony McDaniels with Rare Petro, and until we see you next time, take care, everybody. 